0: Hey everyone, don't forget that I live stream most Thursday nights on Get Vocal and The Crime Line's Facebook page. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Last week I covered murder houses, this week we're going to talk about cases with some type of creepy communication involved, and next week is a creepy disappearance. If you miss the live streams on Thursday nights, you can always watch them on Facebook or Get Vocal at any time. I just leave them up. But if you want the audio only, where I edit out all the chit-chat and the gaps and me drinking water, and you just want the case presentation portion, I offer that on Patreon for any level support. Now, on with the show. In 2003, an entire family living in a resort town in France disappeared. Rumors persisted that they left on their own, when the father's shady business practices caught up to him. Though initially swayed by these rumors, the police gathered evidence that showed a darker scenario unfolded in the Mountain Chalet. I am Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Crimelines. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to cover a French case that, from all the French news shows that I couldn't understand, was a really big and well known case there. Since so much of the coverage is in French and not available in English, I haven't seen a lot of podcasts cover this and certainly no English language ones. I would like to thank Sylviane for recommending this case. I like doing cases that are not known by the majority of my audience, and this definitely fits the bill. I used all the English language sources I could. I Google translated a bunch of articles, and I still had some gaps in my understanding of the case. So I bought a book called La Fair Flactif by Christine Kelly, and I literally read the entire thing all 224 pages by highlighting it page by page and hitting the translate button on Google Books, the things I do for this podcast. That was the longest it has ever taken me to read anything of that length, and this episode is going to be a journey. There is a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. The family we are talking about is called the Flactif family, and they lived in Le Grand Bourneau, which I'm saying wrong, and it's a small resort commune, also known as a township, in the French Alps. The family was headed by Xavier Flactif and Graziella Ortolano. Graziella's parents were from Italy, and Xavier was of French West Indies descent. And they both grew up in northern France. They met in 1989 when Graziella was a 23-year-old mother of a one-year-old son. She was really a quiet, reserved person, and she took a job as a secretary for a real estate developer, and that developer was Xavier. Xavier was described by friends and family as very warm and outgoing and also gregarious and charming. He was the type of person who could strike up a conversation with someone who was just passing on the street. The pair seemed to contrast each other, but Graziello really came out of her shell while she was working for Xavier. The family said she was more confident and more sure of herself and her abilities. She would attend meetings with him and learn the business as Xavier's secretary. Eventually, the professional relationship turned romantic and the two moved in together. The couple went on to have three children together, in addition to Graziella's son. They had Mario, the son, and then Sarah, Leticia, and Gregory. Xavier's business grew through the 1990s. He was incredibly ambitious and focused. But some of that ambition led to corner-cutting and eventually an investigation into business fraud. Now, as much as I like the podcast, Swindled, he's the only person I've ever met who has made financial fraud even marginally interesting to me, so we are going to skim over the dull details and just say that in 1998, at the conclusion of the investigation, Xavier was banned from managing a business for 10 years. Within a year of this massive professional setback, the family packed up and moved several hours away to Grand Bourgnon, which is that ski resort town in Eastern France. They took the three younger kids with them, but Graziella's son Mario stayed with his father where he was enrolled in school and well-settled. He would travel to stay with his mother during school breaks. Though banned from officially managing businesses, Xavier soon set up a real estate business under Graziella's name in their new home. He actually set up several businesses, each having a slightly different function or being attached to a different parcel of land. Xavier bought inexpensive plots of land that were not developed, but had great views of the mountains and the valleys and then he built chalets on them. The goal was to attract tourists for long-term seasonal rentals and also to attract investors who wanted to own their own rental property for income but not actually have to do a whole lot of the work. Xavier would present to them a turnkey opportunity. They would buy the to-be-built chalets and he would handle all the details. He would even find the tenants and manage the properties after the chalets were built. And of course, he's focusing on vacationers who would pay per week nearly what a year-round tenant would pay for a month. Additionally, some of the chalets were broken into apartments and duplexes, increasing profits even more. And I promise all of this is actually relevant. Sometimes I feel like when I have to almost over backstory, I want to just give you guys the caveat that I would not be explaining it if it doesn't give you a basis for what's coming next. So Xavier and his family lived on site amongst these chalets in a large single-family home that he had built. So this business venture was successful in the sense that Xavier was able to rent and sell the homes. The family enjoyed the fruits of this. They owned multiple cars and motorcycles and pretty much every other nice thing you can think of. But rumors spread around town that this money that was being, in their view, flaunted was gained through fraud or illegal practices and not through the legal business, Others brushed off these rumors as honestly just being jealousy. Xavier was being investigated in 2002, not for business fraud, but under suspicion that he was breaking the terms of his 10 year ban from business. I mean, he was kind of. He had been pretty careful to present Graziella as the person running the business, and Graziella wasn't incapable. She had learned about the business. From Xavier for 13 years. She did have a hand in everything, but it could be argued that they were more than skirting the line on the ban. However, before this investigation really led to any consequence, Xavier had successfully petitioned the courts to lift the ban in early 2002. It had been affecting his business prospects and he had lost at least one major contract because of it. So getting this ban lifted was a positive for him. So in all, things were mostly looking up for the family in 2003. They were definitely looking up for the family's finances and their main source of income. So the first few months of 2003 were great for the family. They had some expensive vacations planned, and they had the plan, as always, to fly Mario to them for his school holidays. In April 2003, Mario, who was then 14 years old, flew into town for his spring break. Initially, the plan was for Mario to come on Friday, April 11th, 2003 but 36-year-old Graziella decided to fly him in the next morning instead. He had exams at school on Friday that he just couldn't miss, and that would mean he wouldn't be able to get on a plane until 6 or 7 at the earliest. He would have gotten in so late. But also not wanting to miss out on any time with him, Graziella had earlier that week sent him a plane ticket for first thing Saturday morning. Mario was very excited to have this week with his siblings. At this point, Sarah was 11, Leticia 10, and Gregory was 7. Mario's plane landed around 8 a.m., and he got into a taxi that Xavier had arranged to go get him the day before. Xavier had planned to go get Mario himself, But something came up and he decided to pay for the cab rather than take the four hours driving out there and back. So Mario arrived at the family chalet at 10 a.m. and he tried the front door only to find it locked, which he thought was odd since they knew to expect him. So he knocked on the door. No one answered. He knocked again. Still no answer. So then he tried to call the house phone He called his mom's cell phone, he tried his sister's phone, he tried Xavier's phone, and no one answered. Mario looked around outside, and he did notice that the family car was gone, so he figured they must have gone out for the morning, and they were running late getting back. So Mario waited outside the chalet until around 1 p.m. He put a note on the door, and then he went into town to find a restaurant to get something to eat, hoping his mom would call soon. At the restaurant, he saw his mother's friend, Christine. So he said there was no one home. Did she know where Graziella was? And she hadn't. So she took him back up to the chalet and checked with the neighbors and no one had heard or seen the family that day at all. So Christine took Mario back to her house to wait for word from Graziella to find out what was going on. But as the day wore on, their worry is increasing. They called the police to report that the family was missing and some other friends went up to the Shelly to look around. It was around 10.30 that night that they went up. One of the friends was named Ellen and she knew the house very well. She had a babysat for the Fleckteaf children in the past. She found a door that was unlocked and went inside. She could tell there was something wrong immediately and not the way we usually hear about. There was no sign of a struggle. Everything looked incredibly clean and neat and in perfect order. Ellen knew that's not how the house usually looked. There were usually art projects here and school papers there and a toy over here and a stray cup of water. Just that really normal, lived-in look that houses with three children, and two busy parents have. Now, I'm not trying to call out my own housekeeping here, but I've got a very vivid picture of what this house normally looked like. But the house was, on that main floor, completely spotless. Now, how exactly do you call the police and say you are really worried about your friend because her house is clean? it looks like a struggle didn't happen, therefore you are terribly alarmed. How do you do that? And the main thing she was looking for really was a note, something on the answering machine, just something that would indicate where the family went, maybe a note for Mario, but she didn't find that. The next morning, on Sunday, April 13th, Christina and Mario went back to the chalet to look around some more themselves. Maybe Mario would see something. They noticed basically the same thing Ellen did, that everything was just really way too clean. And in the light of day, they were able to see a little bit more. They noticed that there were two laptops that were out and both were powered on, but no one was around to use them. There was also a large folder of documents sitting in the living room by the fireplace, but it was just random business documents, nothing really indicating where they could have gone. On the stove were two saucepans, and they both had food in them, and the stove was off, but it looked like dinner was prepared and just sitting there waiting to be heated up. Since no one had been there Saturday night, it seemed that these pans must have been from Friday's dinner. The fridge was also stocked with food as though the family had just gone shopping, which is not what you would do if you plan to go away for the weekend. But that's what the police initially told Mario and the family's friends. They must have decided to go away for the weekend and they would be back soon. On a Monday... April 14th. With still no word from the family, the police entered the home. They found it to be tidy downstairs, like Mario and everyone else had said, and then they went upstairs and noticed that it was messier. it looked more lived in. Some of the beds had been stripped of their blankets and sheets, almost like it was laundry day, except the bedding was not found in the washer or dryer. It wasn't found anywhere in the house. But that was pretty much the only red flag police initially saw. It wasn't really enough to sound off alarm bells or point in any specific direction, but there was enough hinkiness around the family being gone that on Tuesday, April 15th, the case was officially declared a suspicious disappearance. The one thing that concerned the people who knew Xavier and Graziella most was Mario. They had never once been flaky like this. They never just disappeared. They would never have left him stranded eight hours away from his house. If Graziella had to cancel or postpone or anything like that, she would have made arrangements for Mario. She would not have let him get on that plane and show up at an empty house. So an early theory was that there was some type of accident. This is a mountainous area. The roads can be narrow with sharp drop-offs. And a business associate of Xavier said that Xavier could be a careless driver. He would speed and zip around corners. And with the family's SUV being missing, this seemed like the most logical and likely conclusion. The police checked with hospitals and surrounding police departments. No one had a record of an accident involving the family or their vehicle. Since they were located so close to the Swiss and Italian borders, Inquiries were sent across the country lines and still nothing. The police searched ravines and waterways. They brought in tracking dogs, divers. They even flew over a helicopter. But they could find no sign of the family or their SUV. So a second theory emerged that the family had left of their own volition to get away from predators and out from under the business debt. Xavier did have a dispute or two related to his business. There were complaints that workers weren't getting paid all the time. Some investors were unhappy with things like construction delays, the quality of the finished work, and or a lack of return on their investment. So diving into Xavier's finances a bit, investigators learned that he had about 15 separate businesses. And he also had a significant amount of debt. All of his debts total were somewhere around 2.7 million euro, which is 3 million in U.S. dollars. I haven't seen a breakdown of debts versus assets because Xavier did have several properties that were turning a profit and he had a lot of projects coming up that would be highly profitable in the future. So a lot of this debt could have been business loans for building these projects and they were still within his ability to pay off. There's no indication from what I have been reading that Xavier was on the verge of bankruptcy or anything like that. But the idea that maybe the shady business deal went south, it seemed possible. And maybe Xavier ran off to get away from it Passports and driver's licenses were also missing from the chalet. And Xavier had arranged that taxi to go to the airport to get Mario. So the decision to leave may have been sudden, but not wanting to raise any suspicions, they didn't want to cancel Mario's trip. So they found a way to get him there safely where he could find friends to help. But if the family did flee, they did so under the radar. The police checked car rentals, hotel registers, flight passenger lists, and they found absolutely nothing. Xavier and Graziella definitely had the money to flee with dozens of bank accounts in various countries, but checking the bank records showed that nothing was touched after Friday, April 11th. So they would have also had to have needed a secret bank account that the police couldn't find to make a flight like this possible. Another thing not touched since Friday were the family's phones. The last call out from Graziella's cell phone was around 5.30 p.m. Xavier's last phone call was later. It was at a bit past 6 p.m., Then the family's cell phones all disconnected from the network at the exact same time, 6.51 p.m. The family still had a landline, though, and there was an incoming call to that phone at 5.43 from the Netherlands, but that just turned out to be someone looking to rent a chalet. Then there was another call to the landline a little before 8 p.m. from a renter of one of the properties. He told the police that when he arrived around 5 p.m. on Friday, he talked to Graziella on the phone, and she told him to let himself in through the garage and that they would bring a key over to him when they got home. When no one brought a key up to the chalet, he called the house and left that message. Shortly after that, the owner of the chalet brought him the key. This would be the last sighting of Xavier, except the man that that vacationer saw was not Xavier. It was someone who lived in another chalet named David Hocha. David told the investigators that around 6 or 6.30 on Friday the 11th, either Xavier had brought him a key to bring to the renter or David went to the house to get the key to bring to the renter. I can't tell if David's story had changed with retellings or my Google Translate button was a little confused. Regardless, the police could not find another neighbor, friend, anyone who had seen any member of the Flak family after this point. So that makes 6.30 the last confirmed sighting of anyone in the family. David said he didn't bring the key over right away to the rental house, but rather waited until around 8 p.m. when he had a chance to do it. Had Xavier given David the key to bring to the renter because he and the family were about to take off? That seemed like a possibility since it wasn't long after this that the cell phones shut off. But the family did not buy this running off thing. Things were looking up for Xavier and the family. Why would they then abandon everything, abandon Graziella's son to go on the run when things were actually pretty good? So that brings in the third theory that people were working with at the time, that something bad did happen to the family, but it was not an accident. All those rumors of unscrupulous business dealings, jealous neighbors, and unpaid workmen may have given someone a motive. Some of the workers who Xavier was accused of not paying were locals, and those locals were already getting annoyed at watching the rising property costs in the area. Xavier had taken advantage of the low property costs to build expensive homes on cheap land and turn a profit. What this did was increase everyone's property value, which is often a good thing, but when it's at a rate where you cannot keep up and you are getting priced out of your hometown's real estate market, it can leave you a little bitter. And there had already been one attack on the family's business. In April 2002, a year before the family disappeared, one of the new chalets Xavier had built was destroyed in an arson. An anonymous tip was called in that Xavier himself had burned it down in some sort of insurance scam, but the building hadn't even been insured yet due to a hiccup in the processing of the file, so Xavier had nothing to gain from this loss of the chalet. Xavier filed a complaint against the unknown arsonist, but this person was never found. The same month that chalet was burned down, the family found their Mercedes doused in gasoline. But because it hadn't also been torched, it came across as a threat to destroy the family, to destroy the business, to destroy their property. But what was the threat for? Were they trying to get them to stop selling houses, to move out of town, to stop hiring workers they couldn't afford to pay? What was the threat? It doesn't seem like anyone, including the Flakty family, knew. And while you could say that Xavier hadn't made a lot of great friends amongst the locals, it wasn't like he had made a lot of enemies either. He was a charming, sociable guy. He had a nice family. Even if people kind of didn't like certain aspects of him or his business or they were jealous or whatever, there's a lot of space between that and being prepared to kill someone and their entire family. So very early on, the family and the police were actually on different sides in which theory they believed. The authorities were leaning in those very first days of the investigation towards the theory the family left of their own accord. But the Teeth extended family believed some harm had come to them. They were frustrated not just by the police theory, but because the media ran with this. They interviewed locals and neighbors and those who rented the chalets, running articles and broadcasts that included the gossip and the rumors and the accusations from those people. Things like how Graziella was Italian, so maybe they were in with the mob, or how Xavier was an unscrupulous businessman treating people terribly, so he likely got ran out of town. So one person who spoke with the media was Alexandra Lefebvre. She was a year-round tenant in one of the chalets, not a seasonal one. And she had also worked for the family as a housekeeper. She said it was for a week, but others say it was more like three days. But she quit because she could not stand Xavier. And she really did paint him to the media as unscrupulous and inconsiderate and she just couldn't stand to work for him for very long. Her partner, David, was the one who had last seen Xavier, so of course, the press was interested in speaking with him as well. As the media was covering the case from the angle that maybe the family took off or maybe they met a bad end because of Xavier being unscrupulous, the police did continue to investigate all angles. On April 17th, they went back to the chalet for a more thorough search. It was six days since the family was last seen. The first concern they had as they entered for a second time was that the laptops and file folder that they saw during that first cursory search had been removed from the chalet. The family and friends of the Flactifs said they hadn't touched them. They didn't take anything from the house. And there was also no signs of a break-in. It looked like someone with a key had taken these items, almost as though Xavier or Graziella had come back, grabbed them, and left again. But the search of the chalet slowly eroded the theory that the family came back for anything. This more thorough search quickly identified the house as a crime scene. On the main floor of the house in the living room, they found small pieces of teeth in between the floorboards. They collected seven in all. And behind the living room curtain was a small caliber cartridge. When looking closer at the floor, they could see very tiny spots of blood. These were so small that they had been disguised by the grain of the wood floor. Upstairs, where the children's bedrooms were, they noticed in one room that there was a small area rug on top of the carpet. They pulled up the rug and found that someone had cut out a sizable portion of the carpet. Down on the bottom floor, there was a strip of wallpaper that had been removed. The local police realized that they may be looking at something bigger than they initially thought, so they secured the scene and they backed out. They called in forensic experts to finish processing the scene. And because of the stolen items, they posted a guard at the chalet. On April 22nd, a full processing of the scene occurred by the National Institute for Criminal Research. And the investigation was, on this day, officially declared a kidnapping. The forensic analysts went through the house floor by floor, room by room. The chalet had an open floor plan on the main floor, and the entire area, as I've mentioned before, looked very clean. But when they used Blue Star... They found a significant amount of blood spatter. Blue Star is very similar to Luminol in how it works, but it has shown to be a bit more sensitive in detecting old blood, even after cleaning agents have been used. The Blue Star helped the investigators find where the blood had been cleaned up, and it also alerted them to some additional visible spots that were just so small that unless you knew where to look, you just were not going to find them. Upstairs near the bedrooms, they found that there was blood that had been cleaned off the landing and there were drag marks in one of the bedrooms. It was the one belonging to 11-year-old Sarah. And then down in the lower level of the chalet in the laundry room, Blue Star revealed more blood that had clear wipe marks, and they also found footprints in the blood. This is not what they wanted to find. Not only had something terrible happened, it happened on three floors of the house in multiple rooms, so they were surely looking at multiple victims. All of the blood was sampled and sent to the lab to run for DNA. They did not have known samples of DNA for the family for comparison. And of course, they all lived together, so it would be hard to say whose hair was in the hairbrush or whose toothbrush belonged to which person. So they collected instead the DNA of Xavier's mother and then both of Graziella's parents to first determine the profiles that would be assigned to each parent. Once they had Graziella and Xavier's DNA isolated, they can run all of the rest to see if there was blood from the children. Now, this process was not quick and it was not cheap. It took months before all of the DNA was back. And in this time, there was also a theory that came up that perhaps one of the parents had killed the rest of the family and by themselves went on the run. Something like a John List or an Elmer Crawford. But when all the tests came back, that theory was gone too because they found the blood of all five members of the Flacte family, both parents and all three children. They couldn't tell which of the two Female children of the Flak was which, just based on their DNA. They just knew these were two female children. They didn't know which one was Sarah and which one was Leticia. One of the girls' DNA was found in the living room and the other in Sarah's room. So it was very likely Sarah in her room and Leticia downstairs. And this would be further bolstered by the teeth found in the floorboards in the living room. They were baby teeth, so they knew they belonged to one of the children. And one of the molars had a filling in it. They checked with the family's dentist and learned that it was Leticia who had a filling in that tooth. So Xavier, Leticia, and Gregory's blood was all found on the main floor in that living room open kitchen area with Gregory's being closer to the kitchen table. Sarah's blood was in her room, and Graziella's was what was found in the laundry room. And what an absolutely devastating scene this was. This scene was covered in forensic evidence, and it gave one massive clue for investigators. There was a sixth person's DNA, someone unrelated to any of the victims. And this DNA was mixed with the blood of several of the victims, and it was found in nearly 20 places in the house. So we may be able to say that someone could have been in the house earlier that day and some blood happened to fall where their DNA was. But can we say that for 20 places? Of course not. We cannot say that. There is no way this is a coincidence. This has to be the DNA of someone who was there when the family was killed. Now, meanwhile, as they're waiting for all these DNA tests to come back, they were also searching for the missing SUV. Someone came forward saying that he saw it on a path about seven kilometers from the family's home on the day Mario realized his family was missing. But by the time the disappearance and the information was out in the media, the vehicle had already been moved. So police used search crews and search dogs to scour the area where the car had been, but they found nothing of note. Then on May 13th, a month after the family went missing, their car was found. It was parked near the Geneva airport. The police discovered that the car had initially been parked at the airport, but it was in a restricted parking area, so it got ticketed on April 16th. It was then moved to a nearby parking lot by someone unknown, with the earliest witness placing it there on April 18th. A car parked at an airport clearly makes it look like someone ran off, but with the blood evidence at the house and that someone moved the car away from the airport later, clearly this was staged. When the car was searched, they found that the protective liner for the trunk had been removed and there were blood smears in the car. DNA tests came back to all of the family members except for Gregory, but we have to assume that he was likely there as well, just his DNA wasn't left behind. It appeared that the family's SUV was used to transport the bodies away from the house after... They were murdered. This new information was slowly making its way to the press, and you would think everyone would be on the same page, obviously, and of course, the family had been murdered. But that's not entirely what happened. There were still people who decided that this was some elaborate staging. Instead of Gone Girl, this was Gone Family, and that they were still on the run somewhere. However, the police did not agree with this. Obviously, they were treating this as a homicide, and they knew they had to find the DNA of the mysterious sixth person. Starting with people closest to the family, including neighbors and business associates, and branching out from there, the police identified about 300 people they would want to test. One person rose to the top of the to-test list pretty quickly, not based on any clues, but based on his own behavior. And that was David Hocha, the neighbor who last saw Xavier alive. The police had noticed that he watched as they were searching the Flakteaf home. Not just a rubberneck looky-loo like other passerby's, but he watched their whole search with binoculars. He had also changed some details between the various times they had spoken with him, and he and his partner Alexandra really did not even pretend that they liked or were concerned for the family. Their various media appearances made it very clear that they did not like Xavier at all, and that gave them a motive. So the police took a two-prong approach in regards to investigating David in July 2003. They asked for his DNA, and they wiretapped his phones. When they first approached David about the DNA sample, he declined taking the test voluntarily. The officer told him that not taking it would make him look guilty, so he ended up consenting to the test, but only after... He let them know he had been at the Flactief home recently to have a drink with Xavier. It was probably the day of the disappearance or not long before that, and he had cut his hand while he was at the house. You know, just in case they happen to find his DNA anywhere, there's his explanation. Now, he was not the only person who gave a little explanation like this before providing the DNA. People wanted to make sure the police knew Every time they had been in and out of that house, just in case they did find their DNA there and it did have a benign explanation. But of course, they weren't looking for a small amount of DNA left behind or even a little in the sink, like if someone did cut their hand and then washed the wound. They were looking for someone whose DNA mixed with the victims throughout the crime scene. When they sent David's DNA sample in, they put him at the top of the priority list to run that DNA, ahead of even people whose DNA they took days before. So it only took two days to get their answer. On July 15th, three months after the family disappeared, it was confirmed that David Hocha was the source of the sixth DNA sample at the scene. So investigators knew he was somehow involved but it would have been a lot of work to kill 5 people in a way that none of them even tried to flee the scene then he would have had to move 5 bodies including Xavier Flactif who was a pretty big guy then there is the cleaning of the scene so that the majority of the blood was only visible when police used blue star Then, on top of all of this, he would have had to drive the family's car to Geneva, Switzerland, only to return later and move it again. So if David was doing this, who was driving him back and forth to the car? Arresting David immediately would not help answer those questions, so the police did not move in right away. Now, if you're a little cynical, you may also think they delayed a little bit, just to avoid having this happen in the middle of tourism season. But, you know, that's if, you're, that's if you're being cynical. The police were also trying to gather more evidence to figure out the whole picture of what happened. So they kept searching for the family. They were investigating and following up on any leads that came in. And most importantly, they kept listening to the wiretapped phones. In one phone call heard pretty early on in the wiretapping, David and his partner Alexandra got into a fight, and she threatened to, quote, tell them everything in the middle of this argument. In August, Alexandra referred to, quote, what happened in the past, and then she commented that it may have screwed up the rest of their lives. Not long after that, Alexandra got on a phone call again, this time with a friend, and to investigators, she sounded like she may be intoxicated. She told this friend some details of the murders, in addition to a bunch of other stuff about her relationship troubles with David since the murders had happened. But then she said that things weren't too bad at the moment because... As spring and summer passed, David became more confident that he was going to get away with it. In addition to implicating themselves, Alexandra and David also implicated two other people in some of these phone calls, Stefan and Isabel Aremza. This couple were Alexandra and David's closest friends. But in one call, Alexandra mentioned not being sure they could trust Isabel, making it clear that Isabel must know something. The police finally felt they had enough evidence to arrest not only David, but Alexandra, Stefan, and Isabel as well, and they moved in on September 17th. The authorities followed David to a supermarket where they arrested him in the parking lot at 7.40 in the morning. They found Alexandra at her home, and then they went to the Aremza home and arrested Stefan and Isabel. So let's talk about this cast of characters, particularly David Hocha and Alexandra Lefebvre. David was from northern France, like the Flachti family, but there's no signs they knew each other while living there. In 1993, David went to the former Yugoslavia on a peacekeeping mission. Though he was there during the civil war he did not see combat. Not that that would be the story he would tell when he got back to France. David had a reputation as a braggart and someone who thought he was better than other people. His war stories that don't appear to have actually happened were just part of the package. In 1994, 22-year-old David met the 17-year-old Alexandra. Her family was not thrilled with this pairing, they did not like David at all. He had a reputation as a troublemaker and a small time crook. He was a full grown adult, and Alexander was still a teenager. They also found him just generally unpleasant to be around and rather unfriendly. When David was 24 and Alexander 19, she found out she was pregnant with the first of their two children. David's mother was also around this time done supporting him and she told him to find his own place. He did have a full-time job, so he should have been able to do this. But instead of getting his own place, he moved in with Alexandra at her grandparents' house. Within a month, the young couple left because they were arguing with the grandparents too much. They found their own apartment to rent, and it was around this time that David started getting more into stealing to help make some money and in 1999, it cost him his job. He had worked as a mechanic for four years at the same place, but his employer saw him growing more and more antisocial. David had issues with his temper, and he started refusing to do the tasks that were assigned to him. Eventually, they fired him after he was caught stealing sandwiches from the vending machine. Alexandra and David had no real income coming in at this point except for government benefits. Even without an income, when Alexandra's mother wanted to move out of her apartment, the couple asked if they could move in and take over the lease. She agreed but reminded them to make sure to change the lease into their own names. They assured her they had done this, of course they hadn't, and they also did not pay the rent. With the apartment still in her mother's name and the couple ignoring all notices, the 6,100 euro unpaid rent bill went to Alexandra's grandparents. They had co-signed on the apartment when her mother had moved in. Alexandra's grandparents didn't exactly have this type of money just laying around So the grandfather went to the apartment to talk the situation over with David and Alexandra and just figure out, what are they going to do about this bill? He was immediately met with hostility from David, who got angry, grabbed the older man by the collar, and forcefully pushed him out the door. Needless to say, David and Alexandra did not help pay what was owed. In January 2001, the couple took their now two children and moved 660 kilometers away to live near Alexandra's father and that side of her family. Alexandra found a rental and asked her dad to co-sign on it, which he did after she promised that they had the income necessary to pay the rent. In this time, they did have the appropriate monthly income, but not through David's sporadic work. His temper and attitude made steady work difficult to come by. He would walk off job sites or get fired. This money was coming from Alexandra's family allowance from the government. If I tried to understand the algorithm they use to calculate how much a person gets in this payment, I would look like that confused math meme. Basically, what they do is they just take into account the number of children, income, if there are two parents involved, child care needs, special needs of the child, and it seems like a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, while I'm not going to sit here and do the math, Alexandra did do the math, and she realized she could get more money if she claimed to be a single mother without her partner living with her and without his income. She figured out just about every other way as well to maximize her payment. And she was getting, from what I gather, a very high payment relative to what her actual circumstances would dictate. Even when they were living in her mother's old apartment and not paying rent, Alexandra would forge rent receipt slips and turn them in so she could collect a housing allowance. She really did know how to work the system. At the new apartment, the couple did pay their rent this time, using the money that Alexandra was defrauding the government for, and they paid it for nine months, until they decided they wanted to live somewhere else, and they left, breaking the lease without notice. And since her father had co-signed the lease, They left him holding the bag. He had to pay the monthly rent until a new tenant moved in. And this is when David and Alexandra moved the family to Grand Bourgnon, and Alexandra found an ad in the paper placed by Xavier Flaktyff. year-round rentals in resort towns are hard to find since landlords can make so much more money renting by the week to tourists. But Alexandra called him about the rental ad he put in the paper and Xavier said he could help them find a place. Alexandra and David got one look at the mountainside chalets with the breathtaking views and decided That's where they wanted to live, whether they could afford it or not. And Xavier was willing to help them with it. There was one little catch, though. Xavier couldn't guarantee they would stay in the same place for a full year or however long a lease would be. He was giving them a break on rent, so they had to take whatever was open when it was open. This meant that sometimes they would be in a large duplex, only to be moved to a studio apartment when the tourism season hit. Xavier moved them at no charge and would not even charge rent for a month if he had to put them somewhere really temporary, like a hotel room. Alexandra and David grew incredibly resentful about this treatment. They'd complain about how the chalets were shoddily built and the rent they were being charged was high for the quality of the home, so they should at least be given a stable lease. If the homes were so subpar to their standards, they could have moved. No one was forcing them to stay there. And the rent really was not that high for what Xavier could make off the place with a vacationer. To Xavier, this was win-win. He was making some money on rentals that were empty anyway, which helped cover costs and pay the owners of the buildings. And David and Alexandra got to live in an incredible place for below market value. But for some reason, David and Alexandra felt entitled to live in the area for cheap without really having to give much up on their end. David even said Xavier was rolling him in the flower, which is a French idiom, meaning that Xavier was taking advantage of him. That's how entitled he felt to having the chalet that he couldn't really afford, that by Xavier not letting him and Alexandra take advantage of the situation, Xavier was the one being unfair. That was the mindset. David was so angry at one point that he burned down one of Xavier Chalets. Yes, that was him. His friend Stefan had helped him with it. David and Stefan had been friends in northern France, and David convinced Stefan to move his family down to the area. They would regularly work together at jobs, and it seemed to everyone else that David and Stefan were the only friends the other one had. David was the more aggressive, dominant friend. But that's not to say Stefan gets let off the hook in any way because he was so impressionable. He was a full grown adult making his own decisions. The burning of the chalet together was not the only thing they did. As part of a larger ring of thieves, David and Stefan committed all sorts of crimes in the area. They stole cars and sold the parts. They siphoned fuel. They broke into tourists' cars that were parked at the bottom of the ski slopes. They broke into homes. And they'd steal things that weren't high-value items. I mean, obviously, they took those too. But if they had a friend or a family member who got a new apartment and needed plates and silverware, they'd steal those for them. They'd steal armchairs and coffee tables. Like I said, they took the cash and the TVs and the laptops, but they also took things you wouldn't think were worth the trouble to steal. Sometimes they gave the stuff away, and sometimes they sold it. So it wasn't just Xavier and the government that David felt entitled to take from. It was everyone else. In late 2002, the chalet that David and Alexandra were then living in was sold by the owner. She told Alexandra that they had to move out. Alexandra gave her a sob story and pushed the move-out date farther and farther until finally, the chalet was sold and they had to leave when the owner closed on the sale. The move-out date was April 12, 2003 the day after the Flakty family was last seen. According to what David and Alexandra told the police early on in the investigation, long before their arrests, Xavier had just signed a three-year lease with them on the home next to his. It was broken into two apartments, so it was like a duplex townhouse style, and they were going to occupy half of it. They had paid him a deposit right before the family disappeared. Of course, early in the investigation, they kind of painted this as he took off with their money. After the disappearance, David and Alexandra squatted in the house that sold for about another month before they were just really forced to move out, and they moved into the duplex that they said they had a lease with Xavier for. When they moved, they stole some of the owner's furniture that was still in the house, but it sounds like she was just glad to see the back of them and did not pursue it any further. So Davina and Alexandra lived in the chalet next to the murder scene from mid-May until early September when they were arrested. They even lived there after Graziella's mother moved into the other side of the chalet so she could be closer to the investigation into what happened to her daughter and her grandchildren and her son-in-law. And David and Alexandra were in the process of moving into that chalet as they were speaking to the media and had the sheer audacity to be bad-mouthing the victims. So these sound like stone-cold psychopaths at this point. You would expect them to sit across from the police and deny everything or just coldly refused to speak at all. Except they cracked right away, all four of them, David, Alexandra, Stefan, and Isabel. They withstood maybe 30 minutes of interrogation each before they spilled what they knew, or at least their version of it. David went first with his story. He told the police that... He was fed up being moved around from apartment to apartment and chalet to chalet, so he went to talk to Xavier. He, Alexandra, and the kids had to be out of yet another home the next day and they had nowhere to go. He said he arrived at the house on April 11th, around the same time the kids got home from school. Xavier and Graziella were not home yet, so one of the kids called them on their cell phones, and Xavier said he'd be home in 20 minutes. David said he waited at the house with the kids, just chatting with them while the younger two ate a snack at the table, and Sarah went upstairs to her room. When Graziella arrived home, David told her why he was there, and she said Xavier would be back in a minute. And A few minutes later, Xavier came through the kitchen door. The men then talked for five to 10 minutes before the conversation became heated. At one point, David pushed Xavier, who was a pretty big guy. The two got into a fight, and David's hand got cut, which is why he left his DNA all over the scene. David then pulled out a gun he had brought for protection and pointed it at Xavier, intending to Just tell him to back away. Except the safety on the gun malfunctioned and it accidentally discharged. Xavier was struck in the head and David believed he died instantly. Not knowing what to do after he was witnessed by two children shooting their father, David turned the gun on the children. Then he went downstairs to the laundry room and shot Graziella and then he went back all the way upstairs and killed Sarah in her room. David said he took bedding from upstairs and wrapped the bodies. He loaded them into the family's SUV and went back inside to clean up the scene. He picked up all the shell casings he could find and was in the middle of cleaning up blood when the phone rang. David listened as the renter left a message asking about the key. David rifled through some drawers until he found the key and ran it over to the chalet. He told the man that he was the owner and if he needed anything to just give him a call directly on his cell phone. He was worried that this tenant would try to get in touch with Xavier over the weekend for something and stumble on the scene before he finished cleaning it up. David had already decided while he was cleaning up this murder scene that the best way to get rid of the bodies was to burn them. So he drove them out to a remote area with some cans of fuel and spent about two to three hours burning the bodies. He then drove the car to the path where the witness later saw it. He dumped the car and walked home. This was seven kilometers or a little more than four miles, so a long walk, but definitely doable. David also admitted he went to the house after he saw the police there on Sunday searching to steal the laptops, the documents, the passports, and so on to make it look like the family had fled. But the truth is, David stole more than just that. Between his home and Stefan's, The police found cell phones, DVDs, a camcorder, and even toys that had been taken from the Flakteaf children and given to Alexandra and David's kids to play with. David did say that Alexandra, Stefan, and Isabella knew he committed the murders, but they did not participate in the murders, and they did very little even after the fact. He did hide the papers, bank cards, car keys, and the murder weapon with Stefan, who then gave them to a friend who obviously didn't know what was in the bag. Stefan gave her. A few months later, David got the items back, burned most of them, but he mailed the gun to Mikael, who's his brother. The main thing the others helped him with was getting rid of the Flakty family car. Stefan is the one who drove in tandem with David out to the airport to dump the car initially. But then David was worried about the security cameras and that they would pick up the car, so he decided to go back out there on April 18th to move the car. Both families went with him this time, and they made it look like a family trip to Geneva. David admitted that Alexandra forged the rental agreement with Xavier that allowed them to move into the chalet, which they didn't do immediately after the disappearances because the media and the police were everywhere, and they thought it would look far too suspicious. That's why they stalled for a month in the other house. The couple were actually initially planning to forge a sale document, but changed their mind to make it a rental agreement. I think maybe the sale document would have been harder to pass off. David also said he went back to where he burned the family's bodies one more time to finish burning them and to burn the clothes he wore that night, any remaining pieces of bones and teeth and whatnot he scattered around. And then just a few hours after his arrest, David brought the police to the area he burned the bodies, and they found the evidence of a fire. A further search found bone fragments and teeth. DNA tests would confirm that these were the remains of all five members of the Flakteaf family. According to David, he had gone to the Flakteaf chalet to talk about renting a new place and also getting some payment for some odd jobs he had done. The amount he claimed Xavier owed him was 300 euros, so nothing to kill over, except, like I said, David was playing off the initial shooting as an accident as he had a physical fight with Xavier. So the motive was self-defense for the murder of Xavier Flatteeth and then the murders of the rest of the family were to eliminate the witnesses. That's according to David. According to the other three, this is a straight-up lie. According to Stefan, who confessed pretty much immediately, David actually began planning these murders four months ahead of time. David was jealous of what the Flakty family had, on top of the building resentment over how he felt he was being treated as a tenant. When he and Alexandra found out that they had to move out of the chalet they were in yet again, they approached Xavier about possibly buying or doing a long-term rental on the chalet they eventually moved into. They even had this dream that they would rent the one apartment, and on the other side, their friends Stefan and Isabel could live in with their family. It seemed perfect to them, but Xavier hesitated. Making that chalet an affordable year-round rental for both apartments would put a pretty big dent in how much he could earn from that building during tourism season. Xavier was not sure he was ready to commit to that. But then David had another idea. He saw a television program on Alfredo Stranieri, who was an Italian-born French serial killer. He was called the classified ad killer because he would meet people under the pretense of buying their property. Once the sale papers were signed, but before he handed over any payment, he would kill the owners taking over the property with these papers he had. The first known deaths were in 1997 when Alfredo killed a couple after getting them to sign paperwork to sell their nightclub. Then in January 1999, he answered an ad for someone selling a Jaguar and shot the man who was selling it. But this man did manage to run and get help and he survived. Because Alfredo met this victim at his nightclub, the police were able to track him down, and they went to his house to ask him about this shooting. When they got there, his wife said that he was out for the day, but he was actually on the run. Just a couple months later, in March 1999, Alfredo, who popped up using his brother's ID as his cover, saw an ad for an inn that was for sale in an isolated area. Without even negotiating, Alfredo offered to pay the asking price because, of course, he had no intention of paying anything. After the bill of sale was signed, the owners disappeared. Alfredo moved in and tried to fly under the radar. However, the daughter of one of the owners was worried when she had not heard from her father, so she staked out the inn, basically, And when she saw Alfredo living there and acting like he owned the place, she called the police. The police were able to quickly realize this was the same man wanted for the attempted murder of the other man. So in July 1999, Alfredo was arrested. The investigation into the other properties and the disappearances of the people connected to them led to them finding the bodies of all four of these known victims. Alfredo was convicted and imprisoned. Except for the getting caught and sent to prison part, David saw this TV program and thought it sounded like a great idea. He could do the same thing to the Flakty family and take over one of the chalets. But David told Stefan that Alfredo Stranieri's big mistake was that he buried the bodies so they could be found. Had he burned the bodies, the police could not prove murder had taken place. So he decided that when he killed the Flakty family, he was going to burn their bodies. Over the next few months, David made a few different plans of how this was going to go down, and they all included Stefan. In late March, David went to get the first part of this plan underway, and he went to Xavier to get him to sign Either a bill of sale or a lease. But Xavier wouldn't sign anything without at least a deposit in hand. So that part of the plan fell through immediately, which is why David and Alexandra turned to relying on a forgery. On April 9th, David and Stefan were supposed to go to the Flakteef house to kill the family. Stefan was tasked with strangling the children while David killed the parents. But Stefan backed out. He just could not go through with it. But he also couldn't find it in himself to go to the police, even though he knew David's intentions. And two days later, David went into the house and carried out the murders himself. Stefan fully admitted to prior knowledge, and he admitted to helping afterwards. He said he was in the house when David stole stuff from it, but he refused to take anything himself. But even though he didn't physically take the items out of the chalet, he did agree to hide things at his house and hide other evidence, and he also helped move the cars. So Stefan has some weird lines in the sand here for how far he's willing to go and what he is and is not willing to help with. But the oddest thing about Stefan's involvement, the thing I still can't entirely figure out, was that he was getting almost nothing from this crime. A few stolen items were found at his house, nothing of massive value, nothing he couldn't steal from someone else's house. He and Isabel didn't even want to live on the other side of the chalet. They told David that they couldn't really afford it and it was too far from Stefan's work. They didn't want to live there. The family had already settled into a different apartment. Stefan got almost nothing out of this, yet he almost helped with the murders of an entire family. He did help with the planning. And when David carried it out alone, he helped cover it up. Isabel, Stefan's wife, also gave a confession that matched her husband's, but she had decidedly less involvement than any of the others. So there wasn't a whole lot she could add. But again, she was someone who was getting pretty much nothing out of this, yet did nothing to stop an entire family, little kids, from being slaughtered. This is one of the most baffling parts of this entire case. So now to Alexandra's role. She didn't confess quite as quickly as everyone else. She first played a little bit like she just couldn't believe that the police suspected her and David, but soon enough, she started talking too. And her statement more closely matched Stefan's than David's. She backed up that this was premeditated, David acted alone, but she and the others helped cover it up. Being that she lived with David, she did have a little more to add. David had told her the day before the murders that he was going to go through with it, even though Stefan had backed out. David left the house around 4 p.m. on Friday, April 11th, and she didn't see him again until he woke her up a good 12 hours later to tell her that he did it and he needed help hiding the SUV so she drove their car behind the SUV and then drove David home after he stashed it on that pathway. She said on the way back home, she started crying and David told her to stop. She also admitted to the police that she forged the lease. The confessions from the co-conspirators helped answer one big question the authorities had. If David had shot the whole family, Why hadn't anyone run? Graziella could have easily gotten out of the house from the basement once she heard shots. Or she would have at least run upstairs to protect her family. Sarah could have made it downstairs and out the front door while he was down in the basement killing Graziella. It just seemed impossible that no one heard the shots that were just one floor above or below them and did not act in any way. According to Alexandra Stefan and Isabel, Davy told them he didn't kill the family all at the same time, Leahy told the police. He actually killed the children first, before their parents were even home. Then he killed each of the parents as they arrived, first Graziella and then Xavier. I think one of the startling things here was to learn that this really wasn't about Xavier's business dealings, even though that was the entire focus of the reporting for months and months. These murders happened because someone wanted to steal more than just a car or some electronics. David Hochel wanted to steal an entire house that he couldn't afford. He killed a father, a mother, and three beautiful children so his family could more or less take over their life. Based on the statements of his co-conspirators, it is clear David's confession was a lie. This was not a spur-of-the-moment mass murder, but this was one that was planned well in advance. And using the blood spatter evidence at the house, They were also able to prove another part of David's story was a lie. He did not shoot the entire family. The blood pattern analysis showed that the only stains consistent with a firearm were in the living room, where it appeared Xavier had died. All the other stains were consistent with being beaten. They believed that David, in an attempt not to alert the neighbors, did not shoot the rest of the family. He used blunt force trauma to kill the children and Graziella. But when Xavier entered the house and David attempted to attack him, Xavier had the chance to fight back. In the process of their fight, David pulled out the gun he had brought just in case and fired one shot. The cartridge had gone behind the curtain, so he either couldn't find it or he forgot to collect it. This is the police theory of how this happened based on the statements of the co-conspirators and the evidence at the scene. There is one thing that those confessions and the evidence did not do, and that was put Alexandra Stefan or Isabel at the scene before the murders or at the time of the murders. David gave a story that only implicated himself, even if he twisted some details to make himself look less culpable. And none of the other three admitted that they had done anything more than not report it to the police and help a little with the cover-up. So that's all those three could be charged with in relation to the murders, because that's all the police could prove, even if they did believe that they had more involvement. But those were not all the charges this group was facing. 25-year-old Alexandra faced additional charges related to defrauding the government for those allotment payments she had gotten. And Stefan faced charges of theft for several of the previous break-ins he admitted to and charges for burning down the chalet. 30-year-old David also faced charges for those things, of course, but the murder charge was what was keeping him locked up behind bars pending trial. David's brother Mikael was also charged after he destroyed evidence. On the day David was arrested, Mikael admitted that he threw the gun into a canal to get rid of it. It was retrieved and tested to see if the safety worked or not. Because remember, that was David's story. He held up the gun just to scare Xavier, and the safety malfunctioned. No shock to learn that not only was the safety in perfect working order, so was the rest of the gun. About a month into his time in jail for pretrial detention, David was having second thoughts about having confessed to Mass murder. Even if he could argue that he killed Xavier in self defense or that it was an accident, he then slaughtered an entire family. He wasn't getting out from under that. And when word got out that he was in jail for killing children, David was assaulted. He had to be put in solitary for his own safety. So, not really wanting to spend the next 22 life behind bars. David hired new lawyers, and he recanted. He said he couldn't say more or explain how he knew where the bodies were, just he wanted to let the police know he didn't actually do it. He refused to make any statements again about the murders for months and months. He was told that they can't investigate an alternative theory of the crime if he wouldn't tell them what it was but he still wouldn't talk. In March 2004, six months after being arrested, David did attempt suicide. A month later, he attempted again. He survived both attempts, though with the second one from the reports I read, it sounds like it was a close call and he was in a coma for a short period of time. A month after the second attempt, David decided he was ready to tell the police what Really happened. David said he went to the Flackef home to discuss the rental or chalet purchase or the money that he was owed or whatever his story is this time when two men knocked him out. They then took his gun off of him, and when David woke up, the family was dead, having been killed at some point while he was unconscious. The men then forced him to dispose of the bodies. David said he knew who these two men were, but he refused to name them out of fear of retribution. This would be the defense David would bring to trial, but he had two trials before getting to the murder one. He was convicted in both the chalet arson and the theft cases. The murder trial itself wouldn't occur until June 2006, three years after the murders. In the time leading up to the trial, David's defense team was very concerned about all the pre-trial publicity. There was a rapper who even had a line in a song that roughly translates to David Hocha child killer. David sued the rapper because his presumption of innocence was being violated, and he was able to get an injunction against the rapper. Not only did he get a small amount in damages, about 1,500 euros and court costs, all future copies of the song had to bleep out that line about him. The defense teams for everyone involved also spoke out about how the media was portraying the four of them and the crime. And while I 100% agree, that media coverage can impede the right to a fair trial, even though it should never do that, my jaw tensed a bit reading about this. David and Alexandra had no problem using the media to badmouth Xavier and spread stories about how he was a shady businessman and maybe the mob was involved since Graziella was Italian. They had no issue manipulating the media when it helped them cover up their crimes. But now that they're being exposed, oh, suddenly it's unfair. In any other case, I would not have blinked an eye at the defense team attempting to stop the media from trying the case in the court of public opinion. But in this case, with how they used the media against the victims, their victims, I mean, my jaw clenched, I have to admit. I still believe that the media should not impede someone's fair trial. In this case, because of what happened, I had to dig a little bit deeper to care that much. Anyway, another thing that happened in the three years waiting on trial was a psychological examination at David. In a letter to his father, he claimed the murders happened in a moment of madness. But after three examinations, the psychologist didn't find any sign of a psychiatric disorder. He said that David was methodical in his planning of the crime and he was capable of rational thought. He had an immature psychology and he didn't see the Flack T family necessarily as people, but rather as obstacles in his way. But that's not the same thing as a mental illness. The psychologist called David narcissistic, phobic, and dangerous. But for the purposes of court, he was fit to stand trial and did not qualify for an insanity defense. When the trial came around, the defendants were all tried together, and that is David, Alexandre Stefan, Isabel, and Mikael. In the U.S., these would all be separate trials, especially Mikael, who's only really being charged with throwing a gun away. But France has a very different system than the U.S., The U.S. has an adversarial system where it's prosecution against defense, but France has an inquisitorial trial system. It's not the prosecutor on one side, defense on the other. There isn't a jury. There is a fact-finding judge. Even this concept we have of what evidence is included and excluded and what we argue over, it's not the same. Something that in the adversarial system would be excluded because it could prejudice a jury could be fully considered in this inquisitorial system. A lot more evidence is included to get a bigger picture. There is a limited right to remain silent, but a defendant can be compelled to answer questions. I mean, he can also lie through his teeth when he's answering, but he can be compelled to some degree to talk. We do have the inquisitorial system here in the U.S. in a different way. Some grand jury proceedings are more fact-finding. If you think back to, if you listen to Insight, we did a two-parter on Martha Moxley. The grand jury system in Connecticut is a judge who is running an investigation, basically. We also see this inquisitorial system during pretrial hearings, where the judge has all the information, and those theatrics that are used to compel juries aren't really allowed. So if we took that grand jury investigation, we took like a pretrial hearing and kind of pictured that continuing through the end of the process, right through sentencing, that is more like the French system. But that's not to say the accused does not have defense attorneys or a team of attorneys. They absolutely do, and those attorneys advocate for their clients. David's defense used the mystery men did it presentation for the judge, which went over, I think, about as well as you can imagine. The only really interesting thing that came out during this trial that would cast some doubt was that there was a seventh DNA sample found in the house that was male DNA, and it was mixed with the blood of one of the girls. It does not have a known match. Now, this doesn't exactly throw the prosecution's theory completely out the window. They didn't really think David did this alone anyway. This would just mean he did it with someone they have not yet identified. But the most reasonable explanation was the one an expert provided in his testimony. The DNA must have been left there at a different time, and the blood did just happen to fall there. There was a lot of unidentified DNA in the chalet, of course. The family were not recluses. They had people over. Since this DNA was mixed with blood in only one spot, and not in several spots like with David, it really truly could have been a coincidence. But the defense attorneys were advocating for the idea that this means there was this other mystery man there, like David said, and it backs up his story. However, they could not overcome his first confession, and they could not overcome the statements of the other three, which were taken at different times when they were apart from each other, right after they were arrested, so they had no time to get their stories together, and all three of them gave the same story of premeditation. So David was found guilty and sentenced to life with a mandatory 22 years. Stefana Remza was found guilty of complicity and got 15 years with 10 years mandatory. Alexandra Lefebvre, who argued that she helped David because she was scared of him, was also found guilty to what translates to criminal association. She was given 10 years with seven mandatory, which was actually the maximum sentence she was eligible for. Isabel got seven years with five years mandatory. She was found guilty of not reporting a crime. And possibly another charge. Again, my Google Translate button doesn't always work. Mikael got one year for getting rid of evidence. David will first be eligible for parole in 2025, but the others have all since been released. David did appeal, but he withdrew the case on the first day it was set to be heard. This case is officially solved, but there is still a massive question here, and it is, did David really act alone that whole night? The killings, the cleanup, the burning of the bodies— All of that would take a lot of time and more time than David said it took. The police did a reconstruction of the burning of the bodies at that altitude using pig carcasses. And they determined that the remains could not have been so incinerated in the time David gives for burning the bodies the fire was likely going for far longer and it just would not fit with David's timeline and his movements. It doesn't fit for David to have been the only one basically tending the fire for that long. But even if we back up before that, moving the five bodies alone, two of them adults would take some effort. Did David really load Xavier Flactief's body into that vehicle without any help? The defense and the prosecution agree that David did not do this alone. It was the two mystery murderers who David refused to name, according to the defense, but the prosecution didn't think it was much of a mystery who helped him. They just couldn't prove it. As Xavier Flactief's mother told the French media outlet Lubs. The family went to court to learn the truth, and they still didn't know it. They had to leave court in the same place they were when the trial began, without all the answers of what happened to their loved ones. As for the outcome of the trial, she said, quote, The years in prison don't change our grief.